0: Turn with me, if you can, to Ephesians chapter 5, that's uh, where we're going to be uh, looking this morning, and specifically verses 7 to 14, that's our scripture reading, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 to 14. Now if you don't have a Bible, you can look up at the screen while I'm reading it in a minute, but of course that won't be up on the screen the whole time, so if you want to keep the text in front of you during the sermon, then either open up your own Bible or feel free to grab one of the blue Bibles that are in the uh, the chair racks, and you can find Ephesians 5 on page 1244. Now, I have to say, um, teaching from this letter that Paul wrote, from, from the book of Ephesians, um, is particularly challenging because on the one hand, as you read through, you just have one thought that flows into the next, that flows into the next, that flows into the next. And, and so, almost any division, any place where you stop and then start again from week to week. Almost any division seems arbitrary. It's very hard to separate one thought from the thought that was before it and the thought that's after it, and so part of you just wants to read it in very, very big chunks. Now, on the other hand, though, there is so much that is is packed into each of the statements that are in this letter. There's this language that Paul uses and the theological ideas that he is conveying here they are so rich in meaning that you can't, you can't go too quickly. And so the other part of you really wants to slow down and spend an extended amount of time on every single little phrase, and we can't do either. So we're trying to strike a, a balance. But it does mean sometimes when you start a text like we're going to be reading this morning... Right? You're going to pick a spot to end the previous week and start the next week, and then you're going to start that week with therefore, which is what we did last week. The text last week started with the word therefore. The text this week starts with the word therefore, and so it practically begs you to go backward before you even start to go forward. Let me just set it up like this before we start reading. The beginning of chapter 5, which is what we looked at last week, Paul encourages Christians to imitate God And to love others as Jesus loved us, sacrificially. And he contrasts that command to imitate God with those who would instead imitate the immoral, the impure, the covetous. And last week we defined all three of those terms so that there was no confusion. Very pointedly, Paul calls those people, those who seek after immorality and impurity and covetousness, he calls them idolaters. And so he says, imitate God... Do not imitate the idolaters. That's where verse 6 ends, and that's the transition to verse 7. So let me ask you to stand if you're able as I read this, and when I'm done, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. All right, Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 7. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. Remember, that's the idolaters. Don't become partakers with them. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, any text about light uh, at this time of year for me is particularly meaningful. So as the amount of daylight that we get each day gets less and less in the northern hemisphere, in this slow painful march towards winter that we call fall, I needed this reminder from the, well, it could always be worse folder. So that's why I went back to the, well, it could always be worse folder and found this uh, this example. I think I actually told part of this story a few years ago at Christmas time, but there's this Norwegian town that's nestled into a valley that from September to March never gets direct sunlight. Can you imagine that? The sun in the winter never rises high enough on the horizon to get over the surrounding mountains that surround the town. So you don't even get the sunlight in, 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 in town for even an hour. Not at all. From September to March. Well, the founder of this town, and there were, there were industrial reasons why it was founded, because you might say, like, who in the world would go into a valley like this and found a town? Well, there were reasons for it, but the founder of the town... Now, Sam Idy is his name. He first had the idea back in 1913 to try to bring the light down into the town, into the darkness. He wanted to install giant mirrors on the top of one of the mountains so that as he positioned them, he could reflect the sunlight into at least a concentrated part in the middle of the town. He had the area, the idea back in 1913 when the town was first founded. He wanted people for at least a short part of the day to be able to walk in daylight at an extremely dark time of the year. But he wasn't able to pull it off. The technology didn't exist to make it, to make it happen. And so the people were left in darkness. They were left to wait. The theme of light and dark is extremely common in the, in the Bible. The light represents the, those things which are right and pleasing to God. The dark represents those things that are evil and displeasing. It's no different in this text than it is that imagery throughout the pages of the Bible. The light actually is likened in many cases compared to God Himself. And then always the command comes to walk in God's light. Right? So God is light, we walk in in God's light, For example, 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 to 7, the Apostle John summarizes the message of Jesus like this. He even says that he's summarizing the message of Jesus. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and we proclaim to you. You ready? Here's the message that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. All right, you see the contrast, light and dark. And that, that contrast is clear in these verses here in Ephesians as well. And again, you see the command to, to walk in light and not in darkness. Paul makes it very clear that Christians should no longer be walking in darkness but should now be walking in light in other words christians should now live lives of righteousness they should live lives of of goodness they should live lives of truth now to some people's ears simply just hearing something like that an invitation like that sounds like a no fun boring dreary life it does to many people maybe that's maybe that's you very likely it's people you know you hear kind of walk in the light you hear something like that and you what does it mean to walk in the light well it means to walk a life of goodness it means to walk a life of, of righteousness. And some people say like, Ugh. that's why we started with where I started. Because what you need to understand is that living a life without God is as hopeless as living in a valley town in Norway during winter. That's what it feels like. Darkness all the time. You have a desire for the light. The people did since 1913. I wish there was something we could do about this. They saw the need. This is, this is, they sell the faint glow every day. The sky got glowy. They knew that something was out there, but it wouldn't come down. And that's how we live in the world. We live in this world with sort of a faint glow, but no actual experience of the, of the light. no way for it to happen, so we think. You feel like that sometimes? You feel like that today. There is a hope that it can be different. The darkness doesn't have to be assumed as just a given that the light is not only out there in some sort of faint glow, but that it has been brought down to us and it is possible to walk in the light. There is in what we read here in Ephesians 5, there's an imperative here. An imperative is a command. There's an instruction about something to do. That's the first point that I want to talk about, to walk in the light. But then we need to see how this ability to obey the imperative, the statement of what we're supposed to do, the ability to do that comes from remembering the indicative, the statement of what is true. That's the hope. The reason for our confidence that walking in the light is possible. To realize that we have the ability to do what we are commanded to do. And in order to do what we're commanded to do, we must recognize who we are and understand who we are. So the first point, walk in the light, that's the imperative. This is what you are to do. The second point, we are the light is the indicative, this is who you are. And who you are makes it possible to do what you're commanded to do. All right, let's explain both. Start with the first. We walk in the light. The command is stated pretty clearly enough, both negatively and positive. You see in verse 7, you see the do not. Verse 7, do not become partakers with them. Right? Who's the them again? Well, the them are the sons of disobedience. It's back from verse 6. The ones who live in sexual immorality, the, wor- the ones who use words to harm other people, the ones who live out of, an, out of line with God's law. Don't be a partner with them. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. Now, this doesn't mean that you avoid all contact with people, even people who flagrant, flagrantly and willfully rebel against God. It just means that you will not join them. You refuse to join them in their rebellion that's stated negatively. Now then, stated positively, verse 8, right? So don't don't walk in the darkness. Verse 8 says, walk as children of light. Here's the the command stated positively. And then the rest of the verse elaborates on that a little bit more. Paul explains the the positive side. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And this might remind you of a very well-known verse in Paul's letter to the Galatians where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Right? He says "This is the fruit of the light is what he says here in Ephesians. Well, in, in Galatians 5, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The evidence of the Spirit's activity in your life is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, here in Ephesians 5, the list is shorter. It's a little more of a summarized version, but it's the same idea. The fruit of light, the evidence of a person walking as a child of light, is that you are acting in a way that is good that is true, that is right and good. So now those those are the ethical outcomes of walking in the light. That's what happens. That's what it looks like. That's the imperative. It's what you're commanded to do. But then from verse 10 through the beginning of verse 14, Paul elaborates a little bit more on how you do that, on how the command is supposed to work itself out. Verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So the command keeps going in more detail now. Right? The command, walk in the light, don't walk in the darkness. Now, a little bit more detail about each. Right? Now, okay, starts with, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In, in our English version, try is not in the original Greek text. It's just a straight-up statement. Discern what is pleasing. If you're old enough to remember the original Star Wars movies, it reminds me of Yoda. Right, there, Do or do not, there is no try. That's what he said. Right? That's not always true in every situation, but that is true here. There is no try. We are to discern, to find out, to examine what pleases God and to do that. And there's many things that we know clearly enough about what pleases God, right? Things where we don't have to wonder if it's God's will for us to to do it or not. Some of those specific commands is what Paul talked about at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says you don't really need to wonder about those things. You never have to think too hard. You don't have to discern whether or not it's God's pleasure for you to engage in a sexual relationship outside of biblical marriage. You don't have to you don't have to try to discern what's pleasing to God when it comes to those things that are explicitly commanded. And like we said last week, God doesn't forbid certain things and command other things because he's only interested in what pleases him. No, what pleases him actually ultimately is what pleases is what pleases us. He forbids some things, he commands other things according to what pleases him. Because what pleases him ultimately and only is the same thing that will please and satisfy us. I, I quoted last week the, the 1981 movie Chariots of Fire. I have a more obscure quote from the movie last week, but like this, this week a more famous quote. Right, Chariots of Fire, for those of you who don't remember, is the true story of Eric Little, a Scottish missionary to China, who was actually better known throughout the world as the gold medalist gold medal winner of the 400 meter race in the 1924 uh, paris olympics and he became even more famous not just for winning the gold but because the 400 meters was not the race that he was originally qualified to run in he was qualified to run in the 100 meters that's why he was sent but on the boat over across the channel he learned that the 100 meters the final for the 100 meters was going to be run on sunday and his convic- convictions as a Christian said, I'm, I'm not going to run on Sunday morning because I'm going to be in church Sunday morning. And so he had to drop out of the race to the great angst and displeasure of a lot of folks in the British government and the British Olympic Committee. Finally worked out and they kind of said like, well, all right, we can get you into the 400 meter. It wasn't his event. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't supposed to be able to run that long that effectively. Well, he ended up winning. Well, the, the, the point though that I'm trying to make in the film before the Olympics, Little is explaining to his sister Jenny why he's going to continue to run even though she wants him to go straight to China. He tells her that the missionary board had approved him. He's been approved. I've been approved to, to, to go to China. And then he says, but I've got a lot of running to do first. And Jenny looks at him with this look of disappointment, and not about China, but about the running. She views it as a waste of time. Why are you doing this? It's just a distraction from the mission. And so this is what Eric says to her. He says, Jenny, you've got to understand. I believe that God made me for a purpose. He made me for China. But He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. To give it up would be to hold Him in contempt. It's not just fun. To win is to honor Him. You see? Running and competing was not simply for his pleasure, it was for God's. And because of that, it became Eric's pleasure as well. One of John Newton's hymns puts it into poetic verse for us. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. You see what he's saying? Our pleasure and our duty... Though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Newton continues, It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond measure and serve him with our all. You see, the pursuit of God's pleasure is ultimately the way, the only way, to guarantee your own. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Aim for heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim for earth and you'll get neither. You see what he's saying? Find out what God's pleasure is and seek that and you will find yours. Seek your own and you will get neither God's pleasure nor your own. That's why Paul continues in verse 11 warning Christians about the unfruitful works of darkness. He says that's like aiming at earth. (laughs) You might think you'll find pleasure in them, but you won't. Instead, he says, this is what you're to do with the works of darkness. Don't walk in them, expose them. Show them for what they are. And he's not talking about, like, you know, angry tirades where we blast those who are walking in darkness, right, with a snarky post on social media or some sort of mic drop comment. That's not what he's talking about. It means that we care so much about those who are walking in darkness that we seek to explain and expose how the ideas of darkness are lacking, how they're insufficient, and how following them, how walking in them will lead not only to a lack of pleasure but to ultimate destruction expose them show that they're lacking because you love people the goal of the christian life should be to help people see life in the full spectrum as god intended it to be seen have you ever noticed speaking of light have you ever noticed that it is that it is still possible after the sun sets below the horizon it is still possible to see for a while but the later it gets even though you can still see forms and shapes, what gets harder to see? Color. Vibrant color. You even experience that on a day like today. Right? The things are just, they're just grayer. It's harder to see something's true colors. But like verse 13 says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. The evil is exposed for what it is, and God's beauty is shown in its full brilliance. When the light comes, we see things as they were intended to be seen. That's point number one. That's the imperative. Walk in the light. Seek God's pleasure. Expose the works of darkness. Now, we talk about the indicative that fuels that imperative, All right? The truth of, what it, of, of who we are that makes it possible for us to do what we're commanded to do. Because yes, we are commanded to be the light, to walk in the light, but we are able to do that because we are the light. Now, this actually might be a phrase that I would be afraid to use if it weren't like explicitly stated in the text. In verse 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. And the phrasing of the, of those statements are very curious and they're very intentional. Note what it doesn't say, like you might expect it to. It doesn't say that you once were in darkness and now you are in light, those are both true, but it says you once were darkness and you are now light, you now are light. And that's important in, in both directions, both in the were darkness and in the are light directions, right? For those walking in darkness, it's a reminder That you're not just in darkness, you know, because you might just kind of think like, oh, I found myself in darkness. I made a wrong turn somewhere. Here I am in darkness. No, this is reminding us when it says that you once were darkness, that, that you are responsible for where you are. The fault for the darkness in which the sinner walks is not out there. It's in here. That's important to remember. That's part of what he's trying to get across by phrasing it this way. He doesn't say you're walking in darkness. He doesn't just say you were in darkness, found yourself, which could be by accident. No, you were darkness. Now, at the same time, it's meaningful on the other side, too. He doesn't say you just are in light. You are light. Because all of a sudden, when you say it that way, light is not just a location, where I am. Light becomes an identity, who I am. Here's where we need to be careful, because... We can't back away from the language that's here. It's clearly stated that way. You are the light. Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. He told them to let their light shine. Can't back away from that. Don't try to deny that. But we do need to make sure we know what we mean mean by that. Because there's probably a hundred different religions and all different kinds of New Age philosophies that would use that exact same phrase telling people that they're light. Saying that they, 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 they need to let their light shine. You know, warning, warning them, like, you know, don't let anyone extinguish your light. Stuff like that. That kind of phrase is used all the time. All right, so we have to be very careful about what we mean here. It's true. It's biblically true. Don't back away from it. But it's critical to note that verse 8 says that we are light, what? Keep reading the verse. In the Lord. Walk as children of light. What's that mean? You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It means Christians are light, but we are derivative light. In other words, the light doesn't originate from us. We are light, but we only become light because of a greater source of light. Brian Chappell tells the story of a friend of his uh, named John Dozier, who was once in the Colorado Rockies as uh, a full moon was rising over the, the ridge, and he heard the honking of geese overhead. And he looked up, and he didn't just see a couple of geese. He saw hundreds, thousands of geese migrating across the night sky, like in the classic V formations. And what he said was the most impressive was that just as the moon was rising, the white underbellies of the geese glowed against the dark sky. It was if, he said, that they were like flying V-shaped Christmas trees across the blackness of the sky. They glowed. And he realized that the breast of each goose was reflecting the light off the snow, which was reflecting the light off the moon, which was reflecting the light of the sun on the other side of the earth millions of miles away. See, the light didn't come from a glory inside the goose. It came from a far greater glory. It was a derivative glory. Chapel writes, it was derived from a distant sun sharing its glory at the will of the Heavenly Father. Right? We are able to shine as the light because God shines on us. That's the subject of the little hymn that's quoted at the end of verse 14 in the text we wrote. That's what most scholars think this is, probably an early hymn that was sung by the church in that region. The great New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce says you can't conclusively prove that, but it's more probable than any other explanation Sinclair Ferguson says that Paul would have spent about three years in that region. He would have been very familiar with the songs that were customarily sung by the churches in that area. In any event, the text that he quotes where he kind of says like, you know, this is is, like you remember the words. It It was written like this. The text seems to be quoted as poetic verse in a way that the people would recognize it. But it's not a direct quotation of any Old Testament passage, right? However though it's not a direct quote. Like most great hymns and songs of the church throughout the centuries, the words may not be a direct quote, but they clearly echo Scripture. And you can can hear the echo of Scripture in, in in what's read here. Perhaps most clearly you hear in these words Isaiah 60 verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. When he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. You hear Isaiah, the echo of Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. You might also hear the echo of Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And you think of that town in Norway for centuries, wondering if it would ever be light during the darkest parts of the year. And in that, in that verse from Isaiah chapter 9, which is commonly quoted as a messianic prophecy, pointing to the coming of of Jesus, in that you probably hear the most important thing about where where this light in which we're to walk, about where that light comes from. It comes from the one to whom Isaiah is pointing in Isaiah 9. It comes from the promised Messiah. And this awakening that it's talking about, awake, O sleeper, it's not... It's not just a simple intellectual enlightenment. Like, hmm, okay, all right, my mind has been awakened. No, no, no. It's a resurrection. That's what it's talking about. A new birth, arising from the dead, which is what makes all this so beautiful because it reminds us of the cost. Because if we are to rise, if we are to be resurrected, well then it needs, it, we need to remember that that resurrection, that arising that we're commanded to do, to, to, to reflect, to see the light, that, that, that resurrection that needs to happen, that comes at great cost. And that's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. It points us to the sacrificial death of Jesus. You remember what happened that night when Jesus died? That, or that, 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 that afternoon, that day? It became like night. Right what happened between the sixth hour and the, and the ninth hour? What, desc- what descended upon the Earth? Darkness. Darkness descended upon the Earth. And that's the most humbling part about it. Christ's light shining on us is only possible because the light was able to shine, but only because the, but only, before, but the only way for that to happen was for him to first experience the darkness. Before the light was able to shine, the darkness had to be endured. And because of that, and only because he hung in the darkness to experience the curse of the children of darkness, because he hung in the darkness, we can walk in the light. That's how it happens. That's how we can be the light, because he experienced the darkness. The people in that Norwegian town, they now have sunlight reflected into the town square each year throughout the day. In 2013, 100 years after the founder of the town had wished it could come true, the technology finally caught up to the idea and they installed big giant mirrors that kind of work with the sun, rotate along with it through the horizon, and for as long as possible, reflect it into the town square. The people of Isaiah's day were not waiting for new technology, though. They were waiting for a savior. And we're not longing for a little bit of sunlight to help us with our seasonal affective disorder. What we're waiting for, what we're longing for, is the cleansing, exposing, healing, and empowering light that resurrects us from our sin and awakens us to a new life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being the light so that we could be the light, for shining into the darkness so that we can experience the full light and pleasure of your presence. Lord, give us in light of that, because of that, the ability to walk as you have called us to walk, to obey your commands as you have commanded us, to walk in the light, to proclaim and to live in truth and in righteousness, and to expose the failures and the weaknesses of those who walk in darkness, not because we seek to win the argument, but because we seek to love them and to show them the true path and the true light that is found only in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.